Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. How you doing, Jane? Very, very congested, apparently. <laughs> so yeah. it seems. I'm so sorry. I'm so <laughs> sniffy. Uh, yeah, next week on Snifflecast. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. And we, we, what are we talking about today? We're talking about angst? Yeah, this is about the American mind and events to de- attempts to divine it. Yeah, and we're talking about how we think about voters and how some pundits seem to think that they have a very special idea of what voters want. And this was partly inspired by me because I'd noticed that there were a host of never Trump Republicans or never Trump conservatives who seem absolutely convinced that every Democrat is bad and that they know specifically what voters want. Now, the id within me is thinking, if you knew what voters wanted, well, we wouldn't be in this situation now, would we? But this led me to think, you know, how exactly do we figure out what voters actually want? Because there's been a lot of interesting research on how voter polling is challenging because voters, when you ask them questions, sometimes say things that they think that you want to hear. And so, you know, as we're in the midst of this conversation nationally about Democratic candidates and whether or not they're too liberal or not liberal enough or too left or not left, I'm interested to think about how do we know what voters actually want from their elected officials? Yeah, there are two other threads, I think, that make this a particularly interesting time to dig into this, because one of them, which I think kind of precedes and maybe provokes what the spate of punditry that you're talking about, Jane, is that over the course of the Democratic primary, we've seen a shift from like color stories from Iowa and New Hampshire in which a bunch of voters tell reporters that they really, really like Elizabeth Warren, but they worry that other voters won't like Elizabeth Warren, that she's not electable. And, you know, therefore that kind of enthusiasm not translating into polling support for her to Warren gaining slowly in the polls to the point that she's now kind of unquestionably in the top tier of candidates, uh, which, you know, one way to explain that might be voters kind of persuading themselves that it's okay to support the candidate they themselves feel most enthusiastic about, slash kind of muting any doubts in their minds about her electability that were what was holding them back earlier in the year. And the third strand here, which I think is kind of also provoked by the war and rise and maybe itself provoked by the kind of center-right punditry about, oh, you can't nominate too liberal a, a Democrat, is a certain panic among the Democratic elite. There's a piece in the New York Times that just ran this morning uh, that's basically a certain number of elite Democrats panicking that, like, surely there must be a better candidate out there who isn't yet in the race because none of the 116 who are, who are or have been in the race are really doing everything they believe a candidate could dream of. Yeah, so here's I think to to think about some some facts, right? I mean, facts I think I think the the sort of biggest way people, both like regular people and professional pundits, tend to make 
mistakes about these things is just it's natural to think of yourself and the people you know as more typical than they really are, right? And it's just like a natural human inclination, you know, to be like everybody thinks that, you know, ramps are so amazing and they really look forward to the ramps coming out in the farmer's market, but I don't like them. But like actually how many people are like weird foodies who know about farmer's markets, right? Like like very, very few. And, and the key facts that I think people always need to keep in mind, right? If you look at the sort of validated turnout uh, from the 2016 election is that 56% percent of the electorate was over the age of 50. 63 percent of the electorate had not gone to college, right? So I think that like in the kind of circles that I live in and that I think all the hosts of this show live in. And probably most of the listeners. And probably most most of the listeners. um, The vast majority of people are under 50 and did go to college. And the non-college graduates in Washington, D.C. are overwhelmingly African-Americans with a smattering of Latino immigrants. Uh, But in the United States of America, those people exist. But there's also a huge pool of white people who didn't go to college. And, you know, we like sort of now know that from a million like Trump country safari stories. But I think people do sometimes have trouble like grasping in their bones that the electorate is a lot older and more working class than, like, the takes universe is. Um, And and that, you know, I do think it it matters a lot, not necessarily in terms of, like, super specific policy opinions, but, like, general cultural attitudes. Like, if you see somebody and that person strikes you as kind of, like, old and fuddy-duddy-ish and a little out of it, like, that person is probably closer to the electorate than you are. Like, the electorate is itself quite old, fuddy-duddy-ish, not up on, like, the latest concepts and ideas. And, you know, I, I think it is, in fact, like, a real issue for Democrats, particularly because Democratic campaign staffers like Weed's hosts and and Weed's listeners tend to be young city-dwelling college graduates. And it creates a kind of gravitational pull toward using like the most advanced cutting edge thinking about everything in the world relative to an electorate that is largely composed of old people who didn't go to college. But I think that there's also a second order thing there, which is Even if you've accepted that you are not the median voter, what does that distance like? How do you attempt to then divine what the median voter thinks? And there's a a certain tendency, right? There's a certain tendency to engage in either anecdote or just straight up thought experiments, right? Like David Brooks had a column a couple of weeks ago in which he straight up imagined a dialogue between what he imagined as a Trump voter and what he imagined as an urban elitist. Uh, Chuck Schumer fairly famously tries to figure out what stances his his constituents are going to take on issues by like imagining a middle class white family in New York. That's obviously not valid from a scientific perspective, but also it cuts in the same direction with both elite Democrats and elite Republicans kind of defaulting to the idea that this is a center right nation, right? Like when David Brooks thinks about these kind of white, lower educated voters, he assumes that they have a certain kind of social conservatism and basic belief in American capitalism that he himself shares, when I think a lot of young, anxious Democrats who are, you know, really traumatized by getting beaten in 2016, even if they won the popular vote, imagine it, they go, oh, these people are in some way fundamentally unlike me. And so whatever I think is good, they probably think is bad. I also think, though, that, you know, when we say like that the electorate is older and more likely to be working class, that actually doesn't tell us that much about their real political beliefs, because voters like all of us, like everyone on this podcast are complicated and multifaceted, which is why, you know, you see a lot of this, especially when people are talking about specific racial groups. So people, you know, when there was a big push for Blexit or whatever from the Democratic Party, the ar- the argument was like, oh, my gosh, big, big push needs to be in. Yes, I am. There. I am air quoting with such Teeny, power, with push. such power. Um, but, you know, the argument was basically, well, African-Americans tend to be more socially conservative, ergo, but it seemed to be kind of a, like, social conservative, uh, social conservatism plus zebra equals Republican. And I'm like, that's not how any of this works for um, a multitude of reasons. And I think that, 
you know, something that's interesting, there was a piece in National Review a couple of weeks ago talking about how older voters have such a sway on the electorate that that is a problem for conservatives, because if you want to, quote unquote, restrain the welfare state or you know, change what Medicare or Medicaid look like, you really can't do that because older voters vote and are not going to be into that. But I also think that you know, I think that we've seen a lot of David Brooksing recently, and we see it from elected officials who basically do things based on the idea of the voters that they have rather than talking to voters. And that's not helped, you know, when we see New York Times or other pieces in which they allegedly are talking to like six in the middle voters and all six of those in the middle voters all happen to be like Republican Party staffers. But I think that there's this, you know, you have an idea of what your voters want. And, you know, if you're Chuck Schumer or Lindsey Graham, you've been in Congress long enough that that idea for you is more powerful than the actual voters are, because the actual voters might be like, I oppose same sex marriage, but I also am interested in Medicare for all. And I'm also interested in getting our troops out of Syria. But I'm still kind of worried about this other thing happening in foreign policy because people are complicated and uh, regrettably how our politics works does not really give that much ground for complexity. There's a if you're on Twitter, uh, I recommend following a, an account called American Voter Bot, American double underscore voter. I'll make sure it's in the show links. It pulls out individual respondents from, you know, public opinion polling often giving, you know, a little bit of demographic information, a few issue positions, and then how they voted in 2016. And often it does go down the line, but there definitely are some times when, you know, there's an issue constellation where I personally go, okay, were they just trolling a pollster? And there are also times that it's useful to remember that like, okay, some people who were super, super, super motivated by, you know, gun rights didn't vote in the 2016 election or some people who you would have expected to have fairly who like reported fairly liberal views then turned around and voted for President Trump. It's it's not you know, it's it's easy to overinterpret those data points, which are, after all, data points in a larger aggregate. But it's a little bit useful if you want to kind of get in the habit of assuming texture in the way that Jane was talking about. Right. Well, and I, I think it's important, though, because, you know, I what what I don't want people to take away from this conversation is like nihilism. It's like who can say, right? One thing you really can tell from the American voter bot, which is which is based on uh, survey data, is that cross pressured voters are very very common. Right. Which is to say, if you just take voters views on I think they do four issues. Right. It's like concealed carry, um, something about immigrants, something about health care, something about minimum wage. It's very common for a voter to be uh, give the liberal answer on at least one and the conservative answer on at least one topic. And there's like an incredible volume I hear all day on social media activists insisting that like there are no swing voters and that everything is just about base mobilization. And and that's like extremely not true, you know, like precisely because most people are not that political. It's really common for people to be not like super geared up into into one of these political sort of tribes. And also when you're talking about mobilizing people who are not necessarily swing voters, but sporadic voters, they themselves, you can see this again in surveys, are less consistently liberal or consistently conservative than the people who do vote consistently, right? And so one thing that you take away from that is that you're never going to have a politician whose policy stances, like everybody agrees with all of them, right? Like politics doesn't work like that. And so one thing that I think seems cl to be clearly bad in politics is conveying a sense of super stridency about your attitude toward people who disagree with you about things, right? That that's a danger zone politicians frequently get into. And, and I remember one particular thing, like Rick Perry, our energy secretary, who once upon a time seemed like a really uh, promising presidential candidate in the 2012 cycle. Um, and, you know, Mitt Romney, who had a million ideological heterodoxies, went after Perry for just being heterodox on providing in-state tuition benefits to undocumented residents of Texas. And so, you know, this was like a vulnerability for Perry, and he had to address it. And he addressed it in the worst possible way, which is that he said that if you didn't want to do this, you would be heartless, right? So there it wasn't just that like some Republicans would disagree with Perry about this topic, but Perry was saying that if you disagree with Perry, you're a bad person, 
And that's like Hillary in the basket of deplorables. Um, it's something that, you know, it's something that should always give you the willies because like you are going to be relying on the votes of millions of people who disagree with you about several important topics. That's like the only way to win an election. And it's like it's beneficial to seem like for whatever reason, the kind of person you might want to vote for, like notwithstanding some some levels of disagreement. And I think that's like very clear um, in the in the kind of results there. Yeah. Whenever I think about the cross-pressured voter, I just think of that gif of Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm that's like, I don't know. I don't know. Go, like looking at both sides because that's I think also, though, I want to get into I think we probably need to take a break. But then I want to talk about the idea of electability and how much voters are thinking about what whatever I want other people don't want. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So my mother-in-law is from New Zealand and um, or lives in New Zealand and called to discuss the American Democratic primary. And she was very interested, one, in why Elizabeth Warren won't explain how she's planning on paying for Medicare for all, which how that has become a big discussion topic in New Zealand, I'm not quite sure of. But it was interesting overhearing this conversation between my spouse, my mother-in-law, because it seemed to mirror a lot of conversations that I overhear or see on Twitter or among friends, the idea of like, I would like to vote for this person, but I also would like to vote for someone who wins. And I think that that's been a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds Joe Biden as the idea of the person who wins versus, say, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders as the idea of the person that you actually want. And you see Pete Buttigieg, in some ways, attempting to kind of thread the needle between them as being like, what if you bo- you got both someone who could win and someone who you wanted? It's a fascinating thing to me because it seems to get to this question of electability that's all based on not just past elections, but also our interpretations of past elections. I was reading, um, there's a new book that's come out about the 1972 election and later elections involving candidates who now we think of as being like very far left, like Walter Mondale. When in the reading, it turns out that Walter Mondale during the general election tacked for- further to the center right, praising Ronald Reagan, uh, who he was competing against for a variety of foreign policy moves and basically attempting to appeal to the center rather than staying to the left. So then you hear a host of kind of lefty Twitter talking like, aha, this proves that had he stayed towards the left and stayed true to the left-leaning ideals that he purportedly held in the primary, he could have beaten Ronald Reagan. Now, 
We don't know that history is weird. But I think that there's this idea of like trying to pursue electability is damaging, but also electability is important. And it kind of leaves me a little confused, honestly. Well, you know, here's the thing about Walter Mondale. And the set, right? I I think there's like there's like two ways to conceptualize like like the center, right, on policy topics, and one is to look at the policy debate among elite actors, right, and like see what positions could be in the center of that debate, and those kind of ideas, right, in, in, in centrist idea in that kind of sense is like uh, carbon tax, right, like that's something that. Um, if conservatives had to do something on climate change, it would probably be a carbon tax, right? So that's like a centrist idea. But if you look at surveys, um, carbon taxes are unpopular, right? And basically any policy that asks the majority of people to pay higher taxes is unpopular, even though a lot of ideas like that have like strong centrist buy-in from elites, right? Then the flip side is some ideas, like Elizabeth Warren's idea of a wealth tax, that polls really, really well, even though it would be considered a far left idea in an elite policy conversation. But wealth tax polls well for the exact same reason that carbon tax polls poorly, which is that wealth tax is proposing that a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people should pay higher taxes to give benefits to most people. Right. So in a way, it's like if you forget everything you know about the policy conversation and you just keep in mind that most people would like to get more stuff and would like to pay less, like you can get, I think, a really good guide to what's politically popular in, in the realm of economic policy. Um, and where people trip themselves up is by getting into a sort of elite dominated policy conversation, which cares a lot about balanced budgets and like the efficiency of the tax system and yada, 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 and all kinds of things that that people don't really care about. Um, but for Democrats, though, I still think most, even though we've had all this dialogue about Medicare for all in the primary, most of the, the vulnerable points seem to me to be on the kind of social and cultural type issue questions. Um, and like, not coincidentally, that's all conservatives talk about ever. Right. Like if you if you immersed yourself in conservative uh, dialogue, like you would have almost no idea that the government like plays any kind of economic policy role at all, um, except as a sort of symbolic battleground. Um, you know, and I and I, I wonder uh, about some of where Democrats have gone post 2016 on these topics. I mean, I also wonder about these things, but I think that there's a certain for one thing, I think it is important to recognize that the moral purity that has seized the Democratic base to a certain extent has also lined up issue positions in a way that they weren't among the Democratic base previously, right? Like we see continued increasing awareness among, and you know, you've written about this, Matt, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the so-called great awakening. Like there's a large segment of the Democratic base that is now substantially more likely both to express progressive opinions on issues of like, especially racial justice and gun control than they were 10 years ago, and to care more about those issues. So I do not envy Democratic candidates and their staff who are currently trying to figure out how to retain the base mobilization that is required to not only win a primary but also a general election because people need to feel that you are representing the same vision for America that they have while trying to broaden a base that is to a certain extent convinced that people who disagreed with them about who was the right choice in 2016 are the reason we're in this problem today. Although, I mean, if you've looked at the 2020 primary, right, if you think about, like, I think the candidates who tried to, like, cue in hardest on those themes, right, whether that's Kirsten Gillibrand, Julian Castro, uh, Cory Booker to an extent, like, those candidates have all sort of fizzled, right? And, like, Biden, Bernie, Warren represent, like, contrasts in important ways, but, like, all do reflect, I think, like, different versions of, like, chilling out a little bit on, on like, I, I, I saw, like, the Castro people being, Castro had some tweet yesterday, he was like, people told me, like, not to talk so much about, and it was, like, some whole list of, like, social justice, culture war topics, um, 
but like I did it anyway. But he's like nowhere in the polls. Like it, it turned out, I think maybe people telling him not to talk about that were giving good advice. Um, and I always think like one of the funniest things that's happened in contemporary politics was um, like after the Ralph Northam uh, blackface stuff came out and it was like four days of like, this guy's got to go, like this is terrible. And then polls came out and it was like the majority of African-Americans in Virginia didn't want him to resign. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly where that left us as a as a country. Um, but like, I just feel like even among rank and file Democrats, there's actually like less juice in some of these topics than like there has been uh, on the Internet. So there, of course, also is a question about rank and file Democrats versus primary voters. And in particular, like caucus state state voters where you have to have kind of an added level of dedication to like go out there and sit out and Mm -hmm. persuade other people to vote for your candidate, right? Like for all of the discussion that I think sometimes takes place when we're talking about Republicans about how much Republican candidates can get pulled to the right in primary cycles where the only people voting are diehard Republicans, I do wonder if the kind of public opinion polls for Ralph Northam or, for that matter, the Democratic presidential primary are capturing a certain amount of soft support from people who are just fine with the status quo or, you know, Joe Biden or what have you, but may not necessarily be motivated enough to go out and vote for them when the polls open, which is kind of the other ghost that's stalking Democrats here, right? It's not only the ghost of 2016, it's also the ghost of 2004, when Democrats persuaded themselves that a certain candidate was electable because he seemed unlikely to turn anybody off and then found themselves in the very difficult position of trying to actually mobilize people to vote for that candidate, not successfully. It's weird, though, because so much of this is positioning that is taking place. And I say this as a member of the media, but it's so much of this positioning is largely based on how the media positions candidates. So you know, when we're having conversations about someone being too something, like too far left or too liberal, that's based on too too liberal or too far left for whom or on what, on what issue. And I, I think that that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and how I think about my own writing or how I think about when I talk about politics is that the idea that there is kind of the center and what the center is and the idea that you shouldn't, you should attempt to appeal to that center because going too far in one direction will dissuade interested voters, it really depends on a very specific definition of what the center is. And so I think that that's something I've been thinking about a lot in just in terms of media coverage of 2020 or even in 2016. There's been a lot of conversation about kind of a Warren boomlet, or now we're kind of getting into a Buttigieg boomlet. And it all seems to be based on kind of like, this seems to be happening or is it actually is it happening because we're talking about it or is it actually happening? And it's really hard to disconnect those two things. I mean, yes, it's hard to disconnect these things. It's like it's hard to get through to reality and things like that. But like there is, I think, a discernible difference between a politician who tries to be politically cautious in their commitments, right, tries to stick to things that pull well, tries to sand off the rough edges of their positions, tries to park conversations in the political safe ground, and between politicians who um, aren't like that, right, who stake out unpopular stances for whatever reason to to get attention or because they think it's the right thing to do or, you know, for, for a million kind of, of, of reasons out there. And I don't think it's like crazy or just media people having their heads up their butts to see that Warren and Sanders are both very much taking uh, the, the second leg of that dilemma, right? And in a way that is even different from Bernie's 2016 campaign, I would add, because uh, his 2016 campaign seemed to me to have a heavy dose of, um, and he was criticized by the Clinton campaign for this, but I think it, it reflected a reasonable political calculation that he was going to, like, de-emphasize certain kinds of, like, woke political struggles and, like, just talk about getting people free health care and college. Uh, but he has gone to, like, a true full-spectrum left on everything. Warren has, you know, her own kind of version of this. Um, and, you know, like, it's—I uh, don't want to say it's good or it's bad. Um, it, 
but like it's a choice, you know, and like there is reason to uh, wonder if that is a is a good choice. Like I think so many uh, Democrats I know are like habituated to a like mid aughts dynamic where they're telling themselves like we could win every election if it was fought on policy, but like we're losing on character and values. And I really think Democrats have positioned themselves now in the opposite way of that, that like they are getting ready to run on a bunch of issue positions that don't seem super duper popular. And they are counting on like character and values questions to drag Trump down, which they may well. Uh, George W. Bush did that, ran those races to great effect. Um, you know, people care about lots of things. Donald Trump does seem personally like a total maniac, scumbag, getting impeached, uh, scandals left and right. You know, why shouldn't he lose? Why shouldn't you take bold positions if you want to? Uh, but like, that's a really discernible difference from somebody who's just going to be like, all right, let's do a $12 an hour minimum wage, uh, throw a little extra money at this or that, uh, make small tax code changes. Like they've decided they want to go big. Um, and like in ways that surveys indicate don't have a ton of public support. A couple of, of kind of loopholes here, right? Well, one maybe less a loophole than like just a calculation going into it is that there is a certain belief that some of the Trump voters, even Trump voters who voted for Obama, at least in 2008, if not in 2008 and 2012, are so bought in on Donald Trump that it actually doesn't matter who's running against him. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is some evidence to bear this out. There was a poll that just came out pretty recently showing a huge split between Republicans who you know, rely on Fox News for their information and Republicans who don't, where a large number of Republicans who rely on Fox News were saying there was nothing Donald Trump could do to lose their support, where like only a quarter of Republicans who relied on other media outlets were saying that. Now, is that self-sorting to a certain extent where if you uh, are a little bit shaky on Trump, you're probably looking to supplement your news diet? Yes, of course. But it does, I think, indicate that the kind of swing voter calculus main there's there is a kind of character and values argument going on but it's not actually about Donald Trump's character and values are bad but Donald Trump is the person to whom we are pledging fealty the other thing that i kind of wonder about the empirics of here is like we're still a year plus away from election day uh there are a lot of people who are not paying attention to anything at all. And it's a well-known fact that candidates often, after sewing up the primary, pivot to the center for the general. Now, like, on the one hand, you could argue that in the kind of social media age where everything is immediately accessible, it's harder to do that. On the other hand, you could argue that, like, Donald Trump is totally inconsistent on a lot of things and no one appears to care. So I'd be interested in kind of and I think one of the real empirical tests here is going to be, do we see, you know, if we have a nominee who's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, do we see them trying to tack to the center? And does that work with the voters who would otherwise be turned off by them? Does it demobilize people who were mobilized for them in the primary? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's been kind of talk among conservatives that their real concern with Elizabeth Warren is that she would be able to better tack to the center using kind of her past as both a Republican and her past kind of writing that was kind of right-ish leaning in the populist age of 2019. But I also think um, one of the challenges that when we're thinking about 2016 and the way Democrats think about 2016 is that they some Democrats seem to ascribe to the what I call the Trump is magic theorem, that whatever Trump does must be super duper magic because that's how he won in 2016. You know, Trump won in 2016 because like roughly 70 to 75,000 people in three states didn't vote. Like that's basically it. If we have 75,000 people vote differently in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, we're in a very different scenario. We're we're, people are probably trying to impeach Hillary Clinton for something. But I think that there, this idea, and you see that that the kind of anxiety from the Democratic establishment is this idea, not just that these candidates might be too far left for the voting populace, but one, that the people who voted for Trump are all Trump's base, rather than the people, you know, I knew, know some people who voted for Trump, but more so in the idea, you know, it was kind of the Brexit theorem, that I'm voting this way because I assume other people aren't voting this way, and I just want to make things interesting. 
And you know, now you're hearing from people who are like, it turns out that interesting isn't always good. But I also think that there's this idea that Trump being this super elite genius who will tweet crazy things and somehow that's like that's a brilliant idea because that's how people think that that's how he won in 2016. I think that that's lending this abundance, perhaps surplus of caution to 2020 Democratic thinkers in a way that I'm not sure is actually based on reality. You know, when you look at the numbers, you see and obviously polling is weird and hard and it is very early because I think that that's the Biden campaign's entire play is nothing matters until South Carolina. But I do think that there's this idea of like, you know, Trump isn't very popular and outside of his base, who is very loud, um, I think that there's this idea that like, well, he won in 2016 by crazy meme magic when actually he won because a bunch of people didn't vote because neither candidate appealed. And it turns out a lot of people who didn't like Hillary Clinton voted for Trump because they didn't like Trump either, but they hated Hillary Clinton more. And you're not probably going to see that happen again in 2020. I, I do think, though, you know, when you talk about sort of like elite level angst, right, some of this is about, you know, can we beat Trump? You know, all, the, all that stuff you, you were talking about, Jane, and, and a lot of it doesn't make a ton of sense. But some of it is a, just about a sense of a loss of control, right, that the traditional steps to winning a presidential primary nomination, the invisible primary in which you court other party leaders and uh, major bundlers and activists and where you do retail politics in Iowa and New Hampshire, like all of that seems to be breaking down. Right. And on the one hand, you have a couple left wing candidates who have this small dollar donor base and are not like accountable really to those kinds of traditional gatekeepers. Then on the other hand, you have Joe Biden, right? who's in some ways a very moderate establishment-friendly pick, but who actually a lot of professionals in the party don't really think is like a good face for mainstream Democratic politics. Uh, they think he's too undisciplined and, and he's too old, frankly. Uh, but he's super famous, right, because he used to be the vice president, right? And then you have the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. Um, and it seems like donors really, really like Pete Buttigieg, Right. And uh, I don't know, like I like him because he's gone on the weeds twice. Uh, but it's not it's not in any way like a normal candidacy. Right. It, it reflects you can see why that will make people anxious. Like even if the polls show all four of these people are like beating Trump. Right. Like people like to have control over the situation. They would like it to be the case that a traditional kind of vetting process in which what you needed to do was have normal qualifications, be of the normal age. Right. Like we don't have a governor in his 50s. <laughs> like anywhere near the top rank of, of the party, right? And so a guy like Steve Bullock, a governor in his 50s, uh, swing state guy, um, some of the like top communications people who worked for Obama and Hillary, they were like really impressed by Steve Bullock. They've had their eye on him for years. He's like there in the diners in Iowa and he's nowhere, right? And like maybe that's fine. Like who who cares about Steve Bullock? But like that's why people feel anxious about the situation, like their understanding of how you select a nominee is completely breaking down in favor of this much more like media, like mass communication centric process by which whether it's Trump's tweets or Mayor Pete on podcasts or Bernie Sanders doing like little viral video clips of himself or just Joe Biden have being really well known because he was vice president, like totally dominates everything. And Change is difficult, um, and and I think that's like a lot of what's what's going on. And it'll it, we'll probably come up with something at some point, uh, but it, like it is a little weird. So, how should we be helping listeners think about all you know? Kind of what's is there something that people really, really, really need to to bear in mind coming out of this as we kind of go into the the primaries in earnest? No. No, all right. No, nothing. No, no I but, mean, seriously. But not that nothing matters. I, I mean, I think, you know, like, try to familiarize yourself with the demographics of the electorate. Try to try to, try to to look things up. Um, go to go to diners. Talk to random people. Blow those anecdotes up into huge things. What more can you do in life? <laughs> I, also, I also think that there, it's worth recognizing for individual listeners that 
sometimes we do this thing in which our views are complex and interesting and other people's views are reductive and simplistic. Exactly. And I'm like, no, other people are also, you know, one, how you voted in one particular election or one particular midterm election is not how you will vote for the rest of your life for or it might be kind of how you it might shift how you start to think moreover. But I also think that there's a sense of like other people vote for very similar reasons to why you vote. Maybe they vote like down, t- you know, straight ticket because it's easy and you're standing there and you have to get back to work. Maybe they vote the particular way they do because they're very interested in one particular issue, but don't really know that much about a bunch of other issues. Or maybe it's a neither of those. So I think it's worth recognizing for listeners that other people's voting habits are just as interesting and complex as yours. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, Let's take a break. Let's do a white paper. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Okay, this was a fun one, I thought. It's, yeah, this um, is good. Is great information good enough? Evidence from Physicians as Patients by Michael Frakes, Jonathan Gruber, and Anupanjana. Um, and it, this is looking at, um, well, stepping back, they say there's like a broad set of ideas that we could make the healthcare system be better if patients were better informed. Um, and that, you know, the, the, right, that like specifically, and this is a, an idea that will be very, very familiar to Weed's listeners, that like there are specific things that patients should be doing that they're often not doing. And on the flip side, there are lots of healthcare procedures that like add a lot of cost and don't add a lot of value. Exactly. And so knowing which ones those are is going to make the healthcare system more efficient and you healthier. Right. Because if we could get everyone to adhere to their treatment regimes properly and also not ask for unnecessary healthcare, we could be healthier and spend way less money. And so we'd all be happy. Uh, so maybe we need better informed patients. Uh, so what they did was they looked specifically at uh, to sort of um, get at this sideways. They were just like, but what happens when doctors are themselves patients, right? Because no patient education program we're going to do is going to make patients as knowledgeable about healthcare as actual physicians are. Um, And they go through it and they find that basically physicians are really, really similar to normal people. Um, they are maybe like slightly, slightly better at at adhering to sort of recommended treatment guidelines, but they're not consistently better and they're not a lot better. Um, and the fact that it's not consistent, right, even if the difference was small, but you saw it across the board, you'd be like, well, OK, fair enough. We're like at least clearly moving in the right direction. Um, but it's really not clear that there's like any sort of benefit here at all um, to the extremely high level of knowledge that that physicians have. Um, so, you know, I guess we are uh, we're doomed uh, or at least providing more information is not going to significantly solve problems uh, because uh, changing people's behavior is challenging. Uh, a couple of things to note here. First of all, shout out to the data source here, uh, which, as we listeners will probably recognize the equivalent, the only equivalent we have in the United States to the excellence of like Nordic administrative data is military administrative data. And lo and behold, here the data set used was the military 
military health data, which includes both military physicians and, you know, they compare them to other like former military officers, et cetera, because that's the kind of granular comparison about use of particular procedures you need. Also, that eliminates any kind of confounding variable of, oh, the doctors aren't paying as much for these procedures or are paying more because they're, they're insured in different ways. Uh, copayments were pretty low across the board here so that it really was about just the value of having better information, not the interplay of information versus financial cost. The other thing to note here is one of the things the authors looked into is to the extent that physicians actually are making better healthcare decisions, is that because they've themselves picked doctors who are better or because they are just making the decision in the moment that adheres to best practices? And what they found, particularly when it came to cesarean sections, which is a pretty well-established idea of low-value example of low value care where like most of the people who have cesarean sections don't need them it you know adds risk etc what they found was that the military doctors who were who could have you know who were who were giving birth who like could have been eligible for c sections were actually more likely to pick doctors who issued more c sections but the military doctors did not, in fact, end up getting C-sections as frequently, which the authors hypothesize means that, you know, when you're looking for a doctor, you're looking for someone who's experienced in dealing with kind of all of the possibilities. And you want someone who, if they have to perform a C-section, can do it competently. But that in the moment, and like, bear in mind, in the moment when you're talking about a person in labor, is that is not exactly a time when people are going to be expected to make the most rational decision. But they found that there was a small but present difference in how often in that kind of moment of decision, military doctors were going with, yeah, okay, screw it, give me the C-section versus, no, I think it's really important for me to have this birth vaginally. Yeah, I thought it was interesting also, um, I th- it, especially because the specific issue, as the paper goes into, of C-sections is one that's that's fascinating because sometimes, it, you know, as someone, I, I was born via C-section because I was quote-unquote stuck. But I think that there's very much of a sense of, you know, there's the people who elect to, to, to do that ahead of time. And then there's the people who elect to do that kind of in the midst of labor. But something I was specifically interested in was the idea of how much does the scarcity of available information play into the decisions that one makes? And would, you know, it would obviously the premise here is that the physician would have more knowledge and ergo make better decisions. But that all really plays on the idea of what the best decision might be. I don't know. I thought that this paper was interesting, but I also I have a lot of questions and I would love to see it in you know, with other specific forms of medical care, especially the, the idea that doctors, you because know, I'm thinking about in other forms of medicine, the idea that doctors might actually be more reticent to get specific forms of healthcare or to have specific procedures unless it's in a very specific scenario. I don't know. I thought that this was interesting, but I'd love to see this replicated across different procedures. Yeah. I mean, I just think that what's sort of striking about this, right, is to just remember like how unlikely it is that the average person will ever be remotely as well informed about the healthcare system as physicians, right? Like, this is like a real upper bound case for like the knowledge hypothesis in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I do think it fits with like, I think it fits with a lot of information we know about, you know, loosely related topics, right? Like, 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 why, why am I overweight, right? Like, do I actually not know that like, you shouldn't eat the M&Ms from the office thing? Or is it just like people, you know, it's like candy, it's good, right? Um, and, And there's a kind of, you know, I think there are a lot of contexts in which, like, we would like to think that if you just provide people with appropriate options and appropriate information, that, like, they will go make the correct choices and all of our problems will be solved without any kind of, like, uh, contentious, you know, coercion or heavy-handed measures or just accepting that, like, there's going to be all these fuck-ups everywhere. And that, you know, what you tend to see in these situations is, like, it's not, it's not really True, you know, and I have seen other studies where healthcare knowledge makes a difference. Um, there was one I think we did it on, on on the weeds a, a million years ago, but it was like 
Healthcare professionals are much less likely to buy name brand over-the-counter medications, right? Uh, because they know that the generic acetaminophen is literally identical to Advil, right? But even in there, right, it's like, is the policy implication of that that, like, the government should run around trying to tell everybody about pharmacology? Or is it that, like, we should actually just take steps to, like, get overpriced medicine off the shelves. And, like, we could save people a lot of money that way. Or maybe it doesn't matter, right? Uh, but, like, you know, in these situations, just, like, less choice when things have a right answer, you know, could be a good idea. Uh, one great thing, like, we do here at Vox Media is they, like, bring somebody in to give everybody flu shots, like, into the office. And so since I started working here, I've gotten a flu shot every year. And I will tell you, like, that was not the case previously. And it wasn't because I didn't know that you shouldn't get a flu shot. It's just like— Somewhere it, Sarah Cliff is sobbing, yeah. sobbing tears. And it's not just the convenience of having it in the office. It's like literally watching your coworkers get up from their desk to go get a flu shot. You're like, yeah, I really should do that. Like, let's, let's not be—it's like social— engineering makes a big difference. The other thing that this is all causing me to wonder about is what's the difference in information effect when you're dealing with something that like you're probably going to, you know, you're going to encounter over-the-counter medication, both if you're a consumer multiple times over the course of your life. And if you're a physician, like regardless of what your specialization is, you're going to be dealing with the kind of generic versus name brand medication differential. Whereas some of these procedures are things where not only are you only going to probably have them like a, once or twice, like, you know, you're not most people don't have eye surgery tons of times in their life. So maybe you don't necessarily know whether or not it's a good it's high value to get a chest exam in advance or you know maybe you don't remember every obviously you probably don't remember everything you learned in med school and if you've specialized in a different you know practice area maybe that's not something that's super familiar to you so i do wonder what we can kind of learn subsequent to this about whether a high degree of specialized knowledge in one area leads you to be more seeking out of expert opinion and less trusting of your own instincts because you know that like, oh, I know so much more than the average person does about like internal medicine. Or if conversely, you kind of just assume that you're an expert and therefore your gut is going to be the same thing as the informed opinion. Right. I, I think personally, and I, I would love uh, Weed's listeners to get at us with some data on this, if you happen to know, because as always, I am happy to be wrong. I would argue, I guess it would be the latter, because I think that if, even if you are an internal medicine specialist, you will have gone through the same basic process to get there that other people in the medical profession will have. And so I also I wonder if there's a sense of you, know, you have this idea of like, well, I know a lot about this. Therefore, I know a lot about my own body and my own understanding of medicine is, I think, more important than seeking out expert opinion, because I think that you know, when I don't know about something and an expert or a purported expert says, like, this is how the something works, I'm like, ah, yes, I get that. However, for the few things that I know a great deal about, when a purported expert says something and I disagree with it, I'm like, that's just wrong. I am not will I am less willing to take that into account. And while that is the most anecdata of anecdata because it's based on just me, I am I would be curious and I would guess that that might be how other people feel. Yeah, I think it may be. Um, so, okay, yeah, I agree. We we could all use some, some more information on this. Uh, and so some humility about what we don't know. I think that's kind of the uh, the answer to, to both of today's segments. Absolutely. Yes. Humility, always good, but also good to keep listening to the weeds to increase or decrease your humility uh, as needed. Um, so thanks, uh, Jane and Dara. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Friday. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. 
Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A.